Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, critically acclaimed author William Shaw sits down across the interrogation room just to clear a few things up about his writing and his craft. Prior to writing crime novels, William was a successful, award-winning music journalist who started out as an assistant editor for the post-punk magazine ZigZag. His columns have appeared in such journalistic publications as The Observer, The New York Times, Wired, Arena, and The Face, and he was named the Amazon UK Music Journalist of the Year in 2003. William's also composed several non-fiction books, including Westsiders, Stories of the Boys in the Hood, about a year he spent in South Central Los Angeles. His fiction novel, The Birdwatcher, long-listed for the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year, and The Sun hailed it as a contender for Thriller of the Year. His books have been nominated for a Barry Award, The Golden Bullet, and the CWA Historical Dagger, and Williams' detective series is set in late 60s London and features D.S. Cal Breen and the brash young constable Helen Tozer. as set against the cultural and political revolution of the times, The series opens with the debut novel entitled in the U.S., She's Leaving Home, and the latest installment in the series is called Play With Fire. It just released on August 13th, and the book opens with the suspicious death of a fading young rock star. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, William. I greatly appreciate you making time to share your expertise with us. Thank you so much, Gavin. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm I'm reading Play With Fire now, and, and this is a really engaging story that feels just as relevant today as when it was placed about 50 years ago. For readers who are new to you or this series, what would you like them to know about Play With Fire? It's the, it's the fourth in a series that's set in London in 1968 and 69. Um, as, as you mentioned, I was a music journalist and I was fascinated by uh, that period. I think anybody who likes music really feels that there was a lot of, it was a kind of tipping point really where popular mm-hmm. culture really became interesting. And I was thinking about how do you write a historical novel that's actually about something more than just history. What's so special about that time? And it seemed like a, for our generation, a, a real cultural tipping point where you had really opposing forces of post-war order and um, social cohesion against a new type of individualism and creativity. And it suddenly struck me you had two characters in that. And you could have a detective who represented the old order and his young assistant who represented everything that was revolutionary about the time. And yet they get along. And so having sort of thought of that as two characters, I sort of set the series running. And at this stage, it's 1969. I always sort of look around and say, what's happening in this time period? I sort of progressive novels by a few months, let's see that. And of course, the first thing I came across was, was um, Brian Jones dying in a swimming pool, not very far from where I live. And I thought, well, that's a good starting point. So I started fantasizing around there. Now, you bring up the 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 timelessness of the music of that era and to to me the the rock of the you know mid late 60s early 70s is absolutely phenomenal and you know i grew up listening to my my parents rock and roll which which was that and it to me is the still the most timeless the most um enduring rock uh, that i think has been made it's just really incredible isn't, isn't that peculiar? Because when I'm writing about that era, what I have to remind myself is how long ago and how different everything else was. 
you have these coppers from 1969, they're from a different era. Um, they use typewriters. They use the worst type of forensic behavior ever. Women police weren't allowed to do very much. Society is completely different. And yet the music is somehow timeless within that. And it's a great way to connect back because the music seems totally present now. But when you go back into the world, this wasn't swinging London. London did not swing very much in 1969. Small bits of it swung. The rest of it was still somewhere in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. London, compared to America at the time, was very poor and was still beaten down by the war. There were still bomb sites around London. Yes. Yet you've got this thing that's, that's somehow seeing far into the future, this sort of rock scene that's going on. And that does seem like a great milieu to play with anyway throughout the series. But yeah, I mean, you know, the Rolling Stones stuff, yeah, it's, it's played almost as much these days, you know, so everybody's familiar with those songs. Yes. They're completely in the present. And yet we're talking now half a century ago, as you said. Now, I also really enjoyed your crafting of these characters, especially D.S. Breen, because uh, selfishly, he feels a little bit like me, uh, kind of a touch out of place and trying really hard to be cool. But, you know, his, his wife is very much a free spirit, much like Mrs. Reese, actually, who kind of wishes her cop husband would quit <laughs> ruining the, the, the rainbows and unicorns that she wants to see in the world around her. And it, it was so authentic, I, I had to wonder how much research you did into police personalities and, and hanging out with coppers to make this seem so legit. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're writing historical fiction, you kind of have to make a character slightly out of time. Because I think, you know, the police, you know, you're, you're a, you understand that world. But the police in the 1960s in London were terrible. They were very unprofessional. Their mm -hmm. standards were appalling. Their procedures were appalling. And so... If you want to make a character sympathetic in that, you're, he's automatically outside of his time to a certain extent. Mm, so he yes. was, I had to make him a man who could see outside the box. And at the beginning of the series, something terrible has happened to him and he's changed. And so he's now slightly distanced from all his colleagues who are always down the pub getting drunk and, mm. and talking about the way they have behaved badly around these criminals. Uh, and so he's, he's, he's from a separate world. And yet, as you say, he's a man who really understands the 1950s. He likes trad jazz. He likes all sorts of things. He's kind of scared by um, this young uh, constable that he's teamed up with. And I think that was a bit like my father. You know, my father was from that generation. He kind of understood that pop music was interesting because so many people liked it. He understood it had energy, but he couldn't actually bear it. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And I think you really got that generation divide at the time where, where you could see that people just had completely different views of the world around then. And I love that tension. But I think, you know, he's an honest man. He's got to be the person who, who holds stuff together. And I would expect then you also had to make sure that his, his partner was, uh, Tozer was also a bit of an outsider then if she's going to uh, identify more with the younger generation, but also with you know, a more ethical type of policing to make her a relatable character for today's audience. Yeah, I mean, I kind, of, I kind of thought about what was happening around then. And of course, in the UK, feminism hadn't arrived at this time. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of a worse time for women, really, because short skirts were in, you know, there was, you could terminate pregnancies and like that, but feminism hadn't arrived. So they were just more vulnerable at that point than they ever were. Uh, and yet, so I make that, so she's a character who kind of is, is also ahead of her time. And she's, she kind of thinks it's a bit of a bad deal. But also it was fascinating looking at the police procedure. I mean, when I was writing it, I met two women who served in the exact same division as I'm setting them, which is D Division in London, which is Marrowbone, around where the Abbey Road studios were. And, wow. uh, and, and I met them and I was talking about, about this character and things like that. And I said, well, she's, a, she's the driver of this policeman. And they just looked at me like I was an idiot and said, women weren't allowed to drive in 1968 in, in the wow. police. 
And, you know, you, you suddenly feel the rug being pulled under you. So, I mean, she's got a lot to kick against in all that. I mean, yeah. all that was, was, was great. And it was lovely finding all that stuff that uh, really makes her want to um, spit. Because um, she's a very angry young woman. <laughs> well, and, and rightly so, it sounds like. You know, I, I had a occasion to, to meet a, um, a, a woman who worked at, at my same police agency. Uh, she was there in um, 70, 71. I think she left in early 72. Um, just because of the, the working conditions for her specifically as a woman um, and the, the um, harassment and all, all the things that she had to bear in order just to come to work every day. Um, you know, she, she called it quits and you know, it's, uh, I really admire the effort she put in to, to stay and to do a good job and to be, um, hold up her, her oath. And it really makes me, uh, makes me angry about the way that she was treated back then at, uh, you know, all the, all the cops who came before us. So I'm really glad yeah. the times have changed. I, it certainly did in London. I mean, you know, Really interesting. I mean, I met, I've met police on both sides because in the 1970s, the Metropolitan Police was seriously reformed and became far more professional. Of course, it's very useful for a writer because you've got a kind of ground zero where you can say as many bad things about how the police <laughs> behave because something yes. happened afterwards. Yeah. And no police officer I've met has ever disagreed with me saying, yes. you know, yes. no, it was pretty grim then. Uh, but because they were the London police, they thought they were the kings of the world. Yes. Um, uh, and which almost encouraged this bad behaviour. So it's, it's a great milieu to be writing in. And it's also fascinating because there was no, the, the London police had no procedure of how to enter a crime scene until, until later on in 1969 when, this, wow. and when they began to codify it decently about what you do in crime scenes, which is incredible, isn't it? Like it is. Today's it is. standards, where, where crime scenes are so well managed mm -hmm. and you know, all the evidence is gained in such a short space of time from just looking at that scene and how important they are in, in current investigations to realise how much stuff you were missing in that thing. But on the other hand, it's great for a writer. It is. People can stumble around and go into the crime scene, which, you know, we writers still write in contemporary crime like there's police officers there. But actually, in reality, that's quite hard for an ordinary officer to be in the crime scene, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah, you, uh, you, you need some kind of all-access pass that starts with a uh, chief or captain. <laughs> Otherwise, you're, you're not in, yeah. Uh, how, how much of your personal life and personal experiences have come into this series? It, it seems like many of the, the scenes, especially around the music and the concerts, in, in that reality, feels very authentic, personal, and like first-hand experience. Well, I am extremely old. <laughs> so to a certain extent, I remember some of it there, but I'm not old enough to have been in those, those, those situations. I mean, I, I tell you, when, when I was, in one of the books, I mentioned um, um, the Magical Mystery Tour. And I used to live in Devon, which is a tiny little town, in a tiny little town down in the southwest, right in the far-flung, completely, you know, miles from London sort of place. So I was there in around 67, 68, 69, growing up as a, as a young boy. And boy, did you feel like that everything was going on somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So in 1967, the Beatles came to stay in the town next to ours, just across the, the, the river. I lived on the coast. And, and uh, the idea of the Beatles coming to Devon was just absurd because they were really from another planet. <laughs> uh, rode across the river to go and see them, and you know, we, 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 never, we never actually saw them. My grandmother was on the news, which infuriated us all, because all us young people had been hanging around trying to see them. My grandmother was the one who ended up being on the news, um, <laughs> being photographed next to the Beatles bus. But, you know, I think that's one of the things that, from my experience, is you just wanted to get in, that, that, that actually 
the whole scene of being cool was tiny in those days. It was only a handful of people who were in on the in crowd. You know, it's such a small scene, considering how completely influential it is to our lives. Really, it was just, you know, it was tiny little circles within circles in those days. And I love sort of writing about that sort of thing because there was also no protection. There weren't really, you know, security around, particularly right. um, on the day-to-day for these people. They were just sort of, you know, these people who we now know as rock icons, but they were they were leading far more ordinary and strange lives than, than, than um, we imagine in those days. So it's quite fun to write that stuff. And it's quite fun to write some of the gigs. I mean, this gig I set it, you know, the, at the beginning of the book, um, there's the, the Rolling Stones Hyde Park concert, the first mm-hmm. one, and that was the first big rock concert in central London. And actually in many ways it was quite shambolic. Nobody could hear what was being sung. The guitars were horribly out of tune. Um, and people were still learning how to do that. And I love showing that, you know, the fact that it wasn't, it didn't come, you know, with bright lights oh, shining down from the heavens and everybody that people were making it up as they went along and they got a lot of stuff wrong. And a lot of this stuff was quite funny. Yeah. I really liked too the, your inclusion of the, the hell's angels as, as security speaking about, you know, having, you know, less security back then. And, and uh, you know, it, it immediately reminded me of the, the stones concert in San Francisco when, when I think one of the audience members got killed by the angels. Yeah. Well, actually weirdly enough, I mean, that was later this year. And, and the guy who was, you know, um, I've mentioned them a couple of times because it was just so interesting. These people who are really from um, a slightly older generation, a lot of the angels, and they've been through, you know, a lot of them were ex-servicemen and things like that. And they were a lot harder than these innocent, young, hippie yes. English people who yes. just said, oh, come over, it'd be great. And, mm-hmm. you know, they turned up one day in Apple in the Apple offices and nobody was quite sure who'd invited them. They said, hi, come on in. And then the <laughs> Rolling Stones saw that the Beatles had the had these Hells Angels. So the Rolling Stones wanted them as well and invited them to be security first at this concert. And of course, they were not security, no. as they found out at Altamont. You know, I mean, they were yeah. a catastrophe. But yes. there's actually, there's the one guy who sort of led that, is mentioned in a previous book, because there was a fantastic concert at the Royal Albert Hall in London um, called the Alchemical Wedding, which nobody remembers now because it was a shambles. And it wasn't very interesting. John and Lennon and Yoko only did their first bagism thing, you know, where they got in mm-hmm. the bag and, and performed. And Alan Ginsberg read some poetry, but generally it was a bit of a disaster. But the Hells Angels were there as well. And they actually, the police at some point came in to try and arrest a woman who'd taken all their clothes off. And the Hells Angels fronted up to the, the police there. And the police, the English police were going, oh, we don't know what to do. And they just sort of backed down at that point. <laughs> also, all the other women threatened to take their clothes off as well and to sort of like straight lace. English policemen, this was just like they'd walked into hell. Yes, yeah. Uh, so I go on about that one <laughs> before then. But, um, but so the, ro- the same Rolling Stones, this sweet same Rolling Stone who was in charge of security at Altamont was still there. So this, like I said, it's only a few handful of people throughout this whole sort of strand of history. So it's great fun to make up stories about them. Now, how did you first become interested in, in music journalism and in writing about music? Well, in the, I, you know, I was uh, in, the, in the late 70s and early 80s, um, music journalism was really vibrant in the UK. And there were magazines like The Enemy around, um, which New Musical Express, which was really, really pushing the whole envelope of journalism and writing, very much like Rolling Stone had done. And um, it was just very electrifying, and I wanted to be part of it. And of course, in those days, actually, it was quite easy. You just sort of stumbled into an office and said, oh, I'd like to write an article about the Smiths, please. <laughs> and they said, here's a typewriter. Go ahead and, and uh, do it. Because... It was expanding so quickly that yes. they could take semi-talented people like me on board. And so I, I started working for that. And then I ended up working for a magazine that was very famous here called Smash Hits, which was the big teenage magazine um, in the 80s. And um, that was 
at the time, the, the guy who asked me in was was Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys, who was mm-hmm. was was uh, assistant editor of it. Desperate, wow. he was desperate for help so he could get people, so he could go off and, and form the Pet Shop Boys. He wanted desperately to leave his desk for a while, uh, so he'd take anybody, including me. So really, the Pet Shop Boys owe their existence to you becoming a journalist. <laughs> yeah, me and several other people, I think. <laughs> I was, uh, I was always a hopeless journalist then. I mean, I think about my fifth or sixth review mm. in there. I, that was a Madonna single, and I said that was the end of her career. She was terrible, and it was all over. So I never got anything right. <laughs> now, did you become a journalist because you uh, couldn't be a rock star yourself? A bit of that, but also it was writing, and I really mm. like writing. Um, yeah, I, I singularly failed to become a rock star like many of us did. Yeah, I think you know most most folks who are are creatives in some compa- uh, in some capacity have you know a desire to be creatives in so many others, right? Like I would love to be a vocalist. Um, I you know play some some wind instruments, uh, mess around on the drums a little bit, but if I could sing, I would give an arm. Um, but you know that just wasn't wasn't part of the blessings, you know. I'm sure you do in the shower. <laughs> I've actually been banned from that. The neighbors complained. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that bad. Yeah. Who Who was your first writing mentor? And do you remember the first time you realized you could write something that someone other than your parents wanted to read? Uh, um, my first writing mentor, I suppose. Um, well, I. You know, I what I used to do which is very nerdy, is I used to copy out whole paragraphs from novels I liked. Mm-hmm. Because I kind of thought if I did that, I'd understand some secret trick that I couldn't see. And actually, in a weird way, it does. Because if you write at the pace somebody else is right, you get quite an interesting insight into how the sentences flow and are put together. Um, but I, in terms of mentor, I don't know. What happened is in, in about 2000, I me and several other would-be writers got together and we formed a writer's group. And I thought a lot of it is we taught ourselves. I'd kind of learned, I taught myself how to write and I knew I could write. I didn't know what to write. Mm-hmm. And I think um, hanging around with these other writers really focused my mind on what to write. And one of them became a very, very successful writer himself, a guy called C.J. Sanson, who sells hugely in Europe. I think he sells a bit in America doing historical crime fiction. Um, mm-hmm. But um, he... You know, it was a real eye-opener watching him and just realising that he had no difficulty finding his topic, whereas I was just floundering around trying to write. And mm-hmm. it took me a long time to realise, um, you know, what it meant to find something to write about. And, you know, I think that was just a thing of growing older and watching other writers at work, to be honest. Um, I think setting your sights on the right bit is really important. You know, mm-hmm. just knowing... Um, what shape you're going to take it. I wrote two terrible literary fiction novels that um, actually had a very good agent and he tried desperately to sell the first one um, because he really believed in it, but it was terrible. Uh, And uh, when I wrote the second one and he recognised the terrible of that, he said, William, don't do that again. Stick to the Mm non-fiction. But uh, I think you keep going sometimes if 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 you're writing. Well, you know what? I didn't realise until I uh, put my my first book out and got that published. how personal it is that you're really putting this piece of your soul out for criticism to the world. And the world is not a a kind place, you know, it's (laughs) it's definitely, you know, way outside your family bonds there. And, um, you know, so every subsequent book that I've uh, had published, it's almost 
like, you know, a, a little member of the family is going out, you know, and we're putting them on, on parade here. And it's a, it's a, a very scary thing sometimes. And I don't think there's anything to really, you know, you know, finishing a book is a gigantic achievement, isn't it? I mean, it's the thing I tell to anybody who's, who's starting is actually finish it because you won't know what it is till you're at the end of it. And actually that's the big achievement, even finishing a first draft, however bad it is. It's a massive achievement, isn't it? I mean, they're big bits of work. It is. And I, I wonder too, on your craft of your writing and, and your writing and point of view, if that's something you deliberately choose your point of view, or if that's something that the characters kind of suss out while they're uh, telling their story to you. I, I, I um, actually read a lot of American um, sort of realist fiction um, when I was finding the kind of voice I wanted to, to write in. And a lot of those people like Carver use a very restricted point of view in the third person and stuff. And I found that a very useful um, thing, whichever character I was doing. I started only using a single point of view and following one person through a novel. Um, uh, just because I love that. I think in detective fiction, it works particularly well because it's the stuff you can't see. You know, if you, the more omniscient you, more omniscient you are, the more, the more viewpoints you've got, the more you have to conceal the story. Whereas if you've got one person, concealment's easy because um, they can only see they can't see what's in the next room and I, I so i love that sort of very restricted point of view and it feels real to me because that's how i experience the world now i'm certain a lot of booksellers want to call especially this series a, a police procedural but in in my reading so far it seems more like you're writing great stories about people first uh, some of whom just kind of happen to be cops and have, have taken on that career and tasking uh in, in which genre do you place this series and play with fire and what books or authors would you most want to see shelved on either side of it? <laughs> wow. I'm hopeless at those questions, but I, I love what you said about the character based stuff, because I think that's, that's really important to me to have, um, you know, really, um, I mean, it's about, it's always about character, isn't it? You know, yes. I think that's, that's the thing. And you know, it's procedural is a, is a genre. I think we'll, we feel comfortable in, in procedure. Um, but uh, I don't really know. I mean, you know, um, in terms of who I want to be next to, I mean, the other day, uh, Sarah Paretsky read, read um, uh, Salt Lane and the Birdwatcher, and she was, she was raving about them. Now that, for me, is phenomenal, because I, that's one of the reasons I was writing crime fiction, was reading her books right when they came, you know, in the 80s and 90s, just thinking, wow, this is a completely different type of... Mm-hmm of writing and actually I think it's become really important because crime fiction began to be something completely different around that time and it bound to be very socially realist and embedded in in real issues and things like that rather than just the mystery and so pioneers like that I think are are really important you know like Ruth Friendell here and and, and people like that so any of those will do for me I just think you know I think I think they transform the genre into something that is much more than just a procedural Yes, you know, the reality of police work and, and true police procedure is so mundane and, and mechanized and it becomes a, a, a flowchart or a checklist and, and most of the job, in, in my experience, right, is like 98% mundane, 2% terror. And there's a, a real narrow gray area that transitions that. And, and uh, so, it, you know, if you're going to write, I, I think you really do have to focus on the characters who just happen to be doing procedure. I think it's also really interesting that we accept, and you talk to, to officers or former officers as well, and they accept that kind, there's a kind of, of um, rule breaking we allow ourselves when we're writing yes. about it. Because actually for a murder 
these days, it's not a team of three or four people. It's a team of very many people, each with very discrete expertises. Very, very few of them follow a narrative in the way that we create a narrative through our books. But that wouldn't make a story. But so we allow that sort of any, let alone that most murders themselves are incredibly mundane. You know, most of them are by people who know each other. Yes. And most of them are stupid and they don't make a good plot. Uh, and so I think we allow our level, a level of, of fantasy mm-hmm. about what, what a police procedure is. We allow that. But what's become really interesting is that since those, those seminal sort of writers, I think in order to make the reader believe in it as well, we have to make other things very real, whether it's the character, the psychology, the history, the fact that there's the Rolling Stones on stage. We have to make those so real to make you believe in the other stuff that you know is a bit less than real. I mean, here we've got, you know, um, writers who set their books on the Shetlands, like Anne Cleves, you know, so mm-hmm. she's killed all sorts of people in the Shetlands. You look at the murder rate for the Shetlands, nobody was ever been killed <laughs> Shetlands. It's a yeah. nice island. People are nice to each other, you know. So, so we're creating a, a kind of strange fantasy here mm. about the murder, because I think all of us, you know, that is a, that is the, that's the hook. We like to explore the dark side. But to make people believe in it, we have to do something else completely and make these real characters and these real worlds. Now, from a theoretical standpoint and based on your, your actual experience as a, as a journalist and someone interested, obviously, in, in, uh, in the lives and, and realities of the police, I wonder what you think the relationship should be between the police and the press and, and where you see opportunities for, for both sides to improve that. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the difference between the police I was writing about in this book and what, how they professionalize themselves now, a lot of that was about openness. I was always amazed in America when I was um, talking, I was working in Los Angeles and I know there's been lots of criticism about Los Angeles police forces, but as journalism, I could ring up and find the officer who was involved in an investigation. They'd talk to me. They didn't think it was a a terrible sin. I don't know what it's like now. This was in the Mm nineties, but you could talk to them. And I thought this was really interesting, a sense of the the democracy, they were servants of the people, therefore they should speak to the press. And that was quite an interesting viewpoint coming from Britain where it had always been quite hierarchical. Um, I, you know, I, I have huge amounts of respect for the police, actually, which I didn't have when I was a young man. That may have been because I was a young man. It may have also been that when I was a young man, the police weren't so good. But I know a lot of officers now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a really hard job. And yeah. it's becoming a lot harder because, you know, all, you know, certainly in Britain, the funding for the police force has been absolutely decimated over the last decade. Uh, at the same time as crime's obviously gone up. I mean, there, it's, there's a, some sort of relationship there. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is I think you get less professionalism in the police force. When they're up against it, they tend to go back to cutting the corners and the trust begins to disappear again. Yes. And in, in an ideal world, you're not on opposite side of the fences, whether you're the press or the public mm-hmm. or the police. You know, you're actually, you're actually all doing a similar job. Um, but it becomes adversarial the moment... Um, you're up against it. And I think a lot of young people in this country are beginning to feel a bit more like they did when I was younger about the police, that the police are there to, to, to be in charge, to, you know, to control them rather than to work mm-hmm. with them. And that, that's always a great mistake because yes. at that point the trust goes, you know. Well, um, it's, and I think it's a, a mistake on, on both sides to, to allow that to happen. Um, but, you know, in, in some degree, I think, you know, we're both sides, um, I think people are becoming a little bit more entrenched now than they have been, at least in, in my life. And, you know, we're, I think, defining ourselves less as neighbors and more as enemies or allies. And it's, it's really dangerous to me. Completely. And it's, 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 um, you know, cause that was always the, the great, um, 
that notion of that sort of community policing is what people have a nostalgic idea of, but it actually does work, you know, when, yes. when you can afford to be embedded in a community and understand it. Uh, and a, a completely different anecdote here. I live in Brighton. Brighton's a huge, has the has biggest um, proportion of, as, as a gay community here. We have yes. a huge pride um, event that happens every year. And I was talking to this police officer who lives down here, and he, he's moved down and he'd been a firearms officer, which is obviously a really stressful job. Um, obviously, firearms are much more restricted in the UK. They have specialist units who just do the firearm stuff, and they're very highly trained, and they do get involved in, in, the, in those incidents um, that happen with firearms. And then he'd had enough of that. It was approaching burnout, so he came to be a community police officer. And the first week he was on, and he was in charge of community policing for Brighton, the first week he was on was Pride. And I, I spoke to him about it, and he said he was standing on this big street, his first week at work, and the Pride parade was going past, and it's nuts down here. It's the craziest yes. thing. He said, all my training has been to spot anomalies and mm. spot things out of place. And I'm looking <laughs> at the street, and I understand nothing. <laughs> Lovely. It's a good way to start his, his job. Yeah. Now, I wonder if, if someone wanted to write a series about a music journalist as their protagonist, what, what would you most want to see them get right? And what advice were you, would you have in creating such a, such a character? What a fantastic question. Um, I think it's that uneasy position that a, a music journalist is in. Uh, the worst thing a music journalist can want to be is with the band. And yet what they have to be is with the band. The, you know, they're not the fifth member of, of the group, <laughs> but they all secretly want to be. Yes. And it's that kind of tension between the two where you know, their professionalism actually allows them to be able to criticise um, the group. But the more they actually hang out with the group, the better time they have and the more beer and drugs they get. Yes. And it's that, it's, that, um, it's that tension in there, which has always, has always been there. Yeah, I would expect it wouldn't be uh, really all that different from, you know, a, a sports journalist, you know, who's covering, you know, the, uh, you know, Manchester United, you know, and, and getting, you know, access to the team and access to the players and still has to be able to go on the news and talk about, you know, how they, how they, how they royally screwed up. Yeah, I guess it must be because, you know, they, they can make themselves very unpopular that way. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I really did enjoy it. And, you know, you you never paid a huge amount of money, but you fly around the world and you stay in posh hotels and, you, and, and you're treated royally for those days. And then you have to go back and write about it in a way that makes sense when you're exhausted on the plane afterwards. But yeah, it was it was good. What would you most like readers to take away from your writing and, and this uh, detective series in particular, uh, Play With Fire? I... In some ways, this is about conspiracy theories, this book, because there's all these um, conspiracy theories that arrived about the death of Brian Jones, that really he'd been killed by his fellow bandmates or that uh, somehow he was killed because he's sleeping with Princess Margaret or, or something like that. But uh, I sort of play with that quite a lot. But we're in a time of great conspiracy theories. In yes. there, and... Um, and I just kind of, I kind of wanted to exploit, explode it. And actually what it, what it really was, was a very sad death of a man who'd taken too many drugs and was quite unhealthy in the, in the swimming pool, which happens rather too often. Yes. And to look for conspiracy in it is kind of to miss the point of it, to want it to be grander. And there's some, I think there's something quite dangerous in this world of looking for conspiracy theories at the moment. It kind of put, it's about, it's a kind of narcissism to put yourself mm -hmm. as the only person who understands the truth behind the hidden story. Whereas actually sometimes the hidden story is just what it is. 
and and so I, that was a kind of theme that I took through there and I quite like people to feel that a bit as well as well as it being a good investigation and a romp in that sort of sense. I really like the way that you put that the, the, describing the, the the narcissism of being the only one to understand it that is absolutely incredible from a psychological standpoint and looking at you know conspiracy theories and, and theorists and uh, having started writing a conspiracy series last year, I didn't realize how much of a conspiracy theorist I am until I started <laughs> exploring that. But you know, there, there is really something um, electrifying about the idea that you're the one guy who understands what's really happening. Yeah. And everyone else is this, this sheep. You know, it's- yeah. No, I think that's it. I think we all want, I mean, it, and again, it comes back to the sixties when this new type of individualism arrived, which, you know, expressed itself in California one way that helped create, you know, a lot of the modern world and the tech sort of stuff like that, but it's mm-hmm. very, very about the self. And, you know, it's sort of unlocked then. So I've got this character, Cattle, Cattle Breen, who, who really is, he gets the shudders every time this individualism comes around. And I quite like that because, you know, we tend to think everything good happened after that time, but mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't all good. Maybe there are a few bad things that came with it, like this total obsession with the self. Yeah. And that's part of what, rubs me kind of the wrong way about social media and about some of our modern society is that it does seem to me so narcissistic, right? Everyone wants to put up this highlight reel of their life that is in no way realistic. Um, And everyone has to take these selfies to show them at this fantastic place doing this fantastic thing rather than just sharing this experience. It has to be about me. And um, I, I really am concerned for how that impacts our long-term mental health as a society and as individuals and and how we're able to get along as a collective society later when we're all so I me focused it really concerns me it's a terrible time of year for me because social media is full of other people's holiday photographs of these delightful experiences (laughs) they've had on vacation and it's just like oh shut up you know yes Show me the show me the cat sick or the you know <laughs> you're going to show something good about your life show something bad just to balance yeah. it life's not all that but it really this time of year it's it's all the beach ready bodies and, and the and the stuff it does does it really does my head in it's just it, interestingly like my children rarely use it and I think a lot of young people are turning their back on it because they just instinctively know it's toxic. Well, you know, if for no other reason, and having never met you before, just based on that statement alone, I'm going to say you succeeded as a parent, William. So thank you. (laughs) From from the the, the cop in me who hates policing other people's children, thank you. (laughs) That's great. I I wonder, uh, as a writer, I would expect you you would also be a, a pretty avid reader. And I wonder who your favorite fictional detective or investigator is in books, TV, or film. Do you know, that, that's a really easy question, but one that's quite hard to explain to Americans. There's a, there's a, there was a, um, a book series written by a guy called Nicholas Freeling in the 1970s. And his detective was a Dutch detective who lived in Amsterdam called Van der Valk. Uh, and they made a TV series of it here, which was terrible, but the books were brilliant. <laughs> but they also were like, you know, he'd, he'd stolen from Maygray in the idea of this sort of um, type of European cop. But for Britain, it was very insular, I think, in, in many ways around then, to have this guy writing a European world and actually understanding the European world. Uh, the writer had been, he'd been a cook and he'd travelled all over Europe as a chef and stuff like that. And he, he began producing these, these books. And they were so cosmopolitan. And his understanding wow. of the world was so cosmopolitan. And they, they were really extraordinary. And they've kind of become really unfashionable. And they don't read so well now. But 
when I was writing my first books, that's what I imagined I was writing. It was a bit sad to go back to read the books and discover what they weren't, what was in my head. But yes. I think many of us do that, don't we? We write the books we, we read when we were younger or the version we have of them. Yes. Um, but I think he, he's a, um, you know, occasionally, like Anne Cleves, the British writer, she's a huge fan of that stuff as well. But I meet very few people that are. It's sort of, um, he went out, for, he wrote a lot of bad books in his later life. He just began churning them out. Uh, and they made very little sense. Um, but they were, the, the early books, the Van der Valk books set in Amsterdam were just wonderful. Yeah, and I, I have a kind of a similar experience with uh, Frederick Forsyth and, and The Day of the Jackal, right? Like, I remember that being such a fantastic book, fantastic movie, and going back, and I haven't looked at it for uh, probably 25 years, and going yeah. back and rereading it now, I'm like, this is stylistically so different from what's yeah. out there today that, I mean, it's it really... Um, the effort required to read it is so disproportionate to the quality of the writing because That's it's amazing. such a fantastic book, but you know, it's still, it's just so different stylistically. I think we do that a lot though, don't we? I mean, I think we hold these images of, I mean, A, any two people who read a book read different books, don't they? Yes. Even if it's the same book, we all read different books. So presumably at a different stage in our life, we're reading the same book and it's completely different. But I, I think a lot of what we do, talk to a lot of writers and they seem to be writing something that really moved them at various stages in their life. And it may not be accurately remembered, but that's all right. That's why you never, we never copy, even if we think we are. I mean, I always think that's the, the case with music. When you listen to reggae, some of those really early reggae acts were trying to copy sort of Miami artists and things like that. It just came out completely differently because they had a different experience. And I think we do the same. Now, based on the last answer, uh, looking at, the Vanderval character. I asked this of, of all the authors that come on the show, William, but God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or maybe even revenge artist would you want working your case? Wow. <laughs> That's such a great question. Uh, somebody who is, is, is ruthlessly good. Who could that be? I quite like, um, how can I get to do that? I probably want somebody who does things a bit by by um by the book. Actually, I don't want one of these maverick sort of uh, cops. Um, yeah, I I might might choose um, Anne Cleves's Vera character actually because she kind of gets the job done and she's sort of no nonsense. I think I'd, I'd prefer that than somebody or other who's got their character all all over the place. Uh, yeah, any any of any of any of the sort of versions of Vera from the Anne Cleves books, please. Fantastic. She's the that's the the first nod that she's gotten among a, among all the series. So I'm going to have to put her up on the board now. Excellent. Uh, where can readers connect with you and your works? Maybe get updates on new releases or find out more about Play with Fire. Well, I, my website's WilliamShaw.com, but I guess the best place is through Facebook, and I'm William Shaw Writer there, or at William Figure One Shaw on Twitter, William One Shaw. I greatly appreciate you making time uh, to share your expertise with us and, uh, you know, making, uh, especially with the time difference between the two of us, I, I know this is probably way more convenient for me than for you. So I appreciate it, William. Thank you. Pleasure. Great questions. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been award-winning journalist and acclaimed crime author, William Shaw. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.